glad to be here with us all on Zoom. Uh, let's look in our Bibles. I'd encourage you to get your text, and we're going to be today in Mark chapter 10, 32 to 45. And I want to ask a very, very timely question. Can you spot a leader in a pandemic? Now, I know that this passage was chosen because it climaxes in that last 45th verse with the Lord saying, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in one way, it's very apropos at the time of the COVID-19 pandemic to ask about serving. It's very apropos this passage shows up on Mother's Day, but it's broader than that. It's for all of us. Uh, and the curious thing, as you'll see, I'm going to read the text as we work through it together. You'll notice that the question of service is discussed in the context of leadership. And that gives this a particular spin that's pretty interesting and pretty important for us to follow along. So I'd like us to go to prayer and let's give this over to the Lord. So join me in praying. Father in heaven, Lord Jesus Christ, and Holy Spirit, we take comfort on this 10th day of May in 2020 that you are, as always, a sovereign king still on the throne, and that you are a God of compassion and mercy, highlighted for us in the cross and the life of Jesus, but ongoing in your expressions of that to us today. We ask that you would grant me your words and us your thoughts together, so that in this passage from Mark, we would all hear you well, and you would continue, Holy Spirit, your work of transforming our minds and our hearts, our lives, our actions, our responses, our discipleship. May you receive full glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So could you spot a leader if you saw one? How would you tell what a leader is? What are they like? Whose standards do we use? We all assume certain criteria when we think of leadership. They succeed in some way in a recognizable sense. Is it somebody in a commonly acknowledged position fills a certain role, a CEO, a military general, a coach, a sports star, a politician, a rich philanthropist, or a personality on screen? Or maybe we use a criterion that's just defined in terms of what a person can accomplish or what they've done. A leader, is this someone who can get other people to do what they want? Maybe they're effective because they manipulate and intimidate. They pronounce and make decrees. They know where they're headed and what they want. Or they have followers 
Well, and of course, the passage today is from the Gospel of Mark. So the focus is on Jesus. So how would we evaluate Jesus then as a leader? He knew where he was headed. As we'll see, it is right to his death. That sounds like the reverse. Does he manipulate others? Hardly. And his disciples will desert him and leave. He doesn't end up with a lot of followers, it seems, as he comes to the cross, so he seems to be a very ineffective leader. The first vignette, 32 to 34, precedes the passage, that precedes the discussion and opens us up, and it's not by accident. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Well, it starts, and it says Jesus is leading them. How did he lead? Jesus is leading on a trip. It's the journey up to Jerusalem, to the cross, and to the end of his mission on earth, to his death. The passage begins with this ominous tone. There is something impending. The response, the, the feelings, the emotions of the disciples, they are astonished, amazed, they're afraid. They are clearly confused. Then Jesus explains, and he makes it worse. For the third time in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus predicts his passion, his approaching rejection scourging, torture, and crucifixion, followed by a resurrection. In each case, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, Jesus predicts the passion. The disciples, in some way or other, indicate that they completely miss the point. This can't be what he's talking about. And then he uses it to teach about discipleship. In chapter 8, which is the pivot, the center of the book, he uses this to teach about taking up your cross and joining him on the way up the hill to crucifixion. Uh, in this chapter, in 10, you'll see what he does. It will lead to servant leadership. So Jesus has an odd goal, it seems. His emphasis is suffering, and each time he said this, in successive chapters, the disciples get it all wrong. Well, a leader should have a clear sense of purpose and direction, and Jesus does have that. But really? Is he leading us right to disaster? It only reinforces the sense that the disciples, and maybe we as readers have, that he's not much of a leader at all. And this brings us right into the next scene. And we're questioning Jesus's leadership. But the end of the passage will, end, will focus us on humility and service. 
but it raises the question in the context and discussion of leadership. And it raises a defining question that we must ask ourselves. What does a leader look like? And I would even add now to that, what does a leader look like now in this odd time of lockdown and pandemic? Uh, is everything thrown up in the air? Is everything redefined within the body of Christ? And so, do you want to be a leader? How can you tell if you are one? And what, at the heart, does God value in a leader? Because that's really what's most important. So the Lord's words and actions suggest some questions for us to use in self-evaluation here. 35, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. This raises the very first question for self-evaluation. 35 to 37, what matters to me? And we're going to learn from this that a leader is not ambitious for self. So Jesus is resolutely heading up the road to give up his life. And two disciples come to him who clearly don't get it right. They make an assumption. We're going to Jerusalem. And all through this section, after Peter in chapter 8 has confessed Jesus as Christ, as Messiah, up north in Caesarea Philippi, the disciples don't get Jesus' definition of Messiahship, that it involves death and suffering before there's ever a throne of glory. They keep thinking this must mean we're going to go to Jerusalem, drive out the Romans, and set up Jesus and crown him as king. And so James and John assume if we're going to Jerusalem, the journey must be all about setting up the kingdom in glory. We have no idea what he's talking about with all this rejection and death stuff, but we do know it's time to put him in power. It's time for the coup, the rebellion. Uh, so that must be what's happening. And I like the way they set this up. Could you please do whatever we're going to ask you before we tell you what we ask? I'm reminded of one of my children at around age four coming to me and saying, Dad, Promise me you'll say yes to what I ask you. I said, well, what are you going to ask me? Well, no, promise you'll say yes first. James and John want to get ahead in the scramble. They want the best seats, the thrones, because those are the sources of power and authority. They're ambitious. They've got goals and a plan. Good leaders, right? They aspire to lead but they got it inside out. How many of us, in essence, pray, 
my will be done, Lord. That's really the bottom line. Or please do what I command you, God, rather than do with me what you want. Am I ambitious for myself or for God? Have I heeded the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. It is a reorienting of my mind. Can I be obsessed with his glory and the success of other people, those he's called me to serve? A parent with her or his children. Is it my career or the kids? And yes, happy Mother's Day there. A husband with his bride's success. What if she outshines me? A boss with the advancement of the staff. What if they all get the credit? What and who gets put first? Whose agenda takes back seat? There's a saying, there's no limit to the good a man can do if he doesn't care who gets the credit. So Jesus responds, 38 to 40, you don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Second question for self-evaluation today. Who am I? A leader understands personal calling. A leader understands God's assignment of lot in life. If I am truly going to lead, I need to resolve and accept what God's calling me to do in life, and that also includes what he's not calling me to do in life. There's a cup and a baptism here. If the first thought is that we're heading to Jerusalem to drive the Romans out and set Jesus on his throne to rule, it seems that James and John must have assumed that Jesus was describing the banquet. Once the battle was over, Roman blood had been shed, and they've taken the city and crowned Jesus. Let's inaugurate and celebrate the new king and his kingdom. The baptism, in their minds, is probably the bath for ritual washing in a mikveh that would have been taken, partaken by a Jew in that era before entering the banquet. And the cup, they think, of course, that's the celebratory cup at the banquet in the kingdom, lifting it high, toasting King Jesus, and drinking the best wine. Maybe he made it out of water, who knows? Uh, but their expectations have led them to overlook that there are other meanings for cup and baptism in that culture and in scripture. Cup is a symbol in the Old Testament of God's wrath and judgment. It seems to speak of destiny if we reject God. 
in the prophets of the Old Testament, it refers often to drinking a cup of God's wrath in judgment, which leads us to total ruin. Baptism is a figure for being overwhelmed, plunged into something. In this case, a figure for suffering, plunged into disaster. This is actually what you are immersed in as you come along with Jesus, because his itinerary goes first up the hill of Calvary, where he will suffer a horrible, excruciating death for you and for me. And he says, come along, take up your cross, follow me. A cross is a symbol of execution in chapter 8. Uh, this is not how we advertise a discipleship group in the bulletins at church. We share his pain, rejection, persecution. And indeed, James will be beheaded and John exiled before this is done. In sports, there's a saying, no pain, no gain. Here, no pain, no glory must suffer before glory. And in verse 40, we find that the Father chooses the throne sitters. Jesus left it to his Father to make that decision. Jesus incarnate as a human said the Father will determine that. What's the flaw in our thinking here? Well, James and John thought that they could rule from thrones, have the glories of drinking and banqueting and fine dining in the kingdom. If there's any suffering involved, it must be just that battle to take Jerusalem as a prelude to resplendent glory and power. They and we must really face the ongoing cold reality of a hateful world that despises Christ and his followers. So many of us assume and think that our lot in life, God must have destined us to be regal. We see our abilities or our lot as greater than they actually are to be. Certainly what God would want for me, it's all glory all the time. As a result, they, and I think I and probably you, are a bit deaf to what Jesus said about what we must do. I cannot fail to discern this vast divergence between Jesus and myself. How many of us assume that God inevitably wants me to succeed in this life, to garner people's esteem, to exceed anybody's estimate of my abilities? As a result, my focus is misplaced and I become less effective, less available to others to meet real needs, and less reflective to actually seek and follow the Lord. Well, unfortunately, if you make this kind of request, somebody might overhear you. And the word gets out about James and John's bold request, and some new questions lead to a startling revelation. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, 
you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. 41 to 44, the third self-evaluative question. How do I relate to others? A leader learns to put others ahead of self. The 10 other disciples, frankly, were mad. Humph! Because they had the same basic set of values that James and John did. They didn't want those sons of Zebedee getting ahead of them. Jesus is all alone here in this scene, the only one who knows and lives the truth. And he points the disciples to the Gentile rulers who show an excessive hierarchy of authority. And it's ironic because the disciples despise the Romans. The emperors of the day, first Augustus and then Tiberius, on their coins are even designated as he who deserves adoration. And we know that they built temples throughout the empire to receive worship as a god. The pomp, the display, the desire is to keep everyone below you. Just like James and John, let us be over the rest. And Jesus describes their approach to leadership. Uh, they lord it over them. The word means they play the boss. They look down on people. They have dominion and mastery. They bring them into subjection and exercise authority. These are people who enjoy issuing commands, telling us what to do. It's reassuring to see the rest of the people scurry off to obey, feel in control. But Jesus also says, not so with us. It's all going to be different among the followers of Jesus. He redefines this. If you want to be great, if you want to be big in the kingdom, you must be a servant. And this is the word we get deacon from, the diakonos. The servant is the person who gets something done, often at the behest of a superior, someone who assists someone else's plans get carried out. But to take no chance we misunderstood him the first time, Jesus reiterates it with different words. There is much more here than putting the needs of the customer first. He says, if you want to be tops, number one, you accept a role now not as the diakonos, the servant, but as the doulos, the slave. The word here denotes somebody who is totally under someone else's control. A slave has a master. I am solely committed to that master's good. My duty is bound to them alone. And he says, this is how you regard each other in the body of Christ. 
and it is, you'll note the wording, slave of all, not just those selected people that I feel comfortable with in the body of Christ. D.L. Moody said, the measure of a man is not how many servants he has, but how many people he serves. A leader cannot be someone who lusts for power or enjoys feeling control. I must have my own way, be in the top position, make all the decisions, have a big name, more money, power, influence, intimidate, manipulate those below me, play one-upsmanship. All these may make me feel secure if I'm in control and I come out on top, but they really show that I'm insecure. A leader serves others. A leader has a strong sense of personal security and relation with God, entrusting him to take care, even if it's not noticed. I'm secure in the Lord. Safety first is a bad motto in our relationships as disciples of Christ. I have to take risks for the Lord and put others ahead of myself. Give up my desires, not keep my position safe, and realize that I may not be recognized as a leader in some cases. People may miss it. The issue is not where I will gain the most or be perceived as most successful, but the issue rather has to do with where can I give most? Where will I be used by God the best? It's been said that we may easily be too big for God to use, but never too small. Verse 45. One more question to raise. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus wraps this up, distills his point in a final expansion, a fourth question, a step beyond. The fourth question to evaluate my life, who is leading me? Whom do I follow? Like Jesus, a leader follows the way of the cross. Why does he call us as disciples to this? Simply put, it is his own life direction. This is Jesus's spirit, Jesus's commitment. Note the way he phrases this. Even the Son of Man, this not commonly used messianic title, is derived from Daniel 7, 13 and 14. In the vision of God's throne, the one like the Son of Man is exalted in glory and seated on a royal throne at the right hand of God the Father. Surely, this figure will be served, adored. We will bow down. Yes, and indeed we will. But this is Jesus, and that's not why he came. The Son of Man did not come to be served. He rules out the usual expectation. But to serve, he places himself, Son of Man who was destined for the throne of glory and eternity, as someone who 
meets needs, helps us, assists us. How does he say he will serve? He will give up his life voluntarily, sacrificially, the most precious thing you think we possess as a human, our lives, as a ransom for many. Now, the word ransom, though I know a very darling toddler, shout out to Dan and Rachel, uh, named ransom, uh, is the word lutron. The idea of a lutron here is a price of release, a ransom. The idea is that we are imprisoned. We are slaves to sin, and we need to be sprung free. And the way that that is accomplished is that something is paid as a substitute, equal in value to what is redeemed. It is his life or mine. He frees me by paying with his own life. This is serving, and it is serving by suffering. Uh, this afternoon, you might take a look at Isaiah 53 and see the concept of God's servant, the Messiah, who suffers, pours out his life unto death because he bears the sin of many. Jesus' life is the guilt offering that compensates for our sins, and it's for many. He releases many from sin. This substitute standing in our place instead of us. What would have happened to me by all rights happens to him instead. And he sets us free. Give his life as a ransom for many. And the word for doesn't mean on behalf of many as much as it means instead of many. He steps into my place and my deserved end so that I am no longer subject to death, freed from slavery to sin, and a participant, a recipient of eternal life. By sin, I forfeited my life, as did you. Jesus gives us life, a better life, here and forever. Note before we close the scene that follows this passage. The following unit was not placed there arbitrarily. 46 to 52, describe how we pass by Jericho down in the Jordan Valley. They've come south from Galilee. We're coming to Jericho. And at this point, the road turns to the west, goes up into the highlands, the hills, of central Israel where Jerusalem is, and we begin the climb, the rather arduous climb, 20 miles up 3,500 feet elevation to Jerusalem. And at the time for the feast, there's crowds of pilgrims flocking the road, and Jesus with his entourage comes along, and he's interrupted by an outcast, somebody literally on the fringe. Jesus is accosted by a blind man named Bartimaeus. And now you see the principle 
gospel we've just talked about in action. Jesus does what he's just talked about. He interrupts the procession, goes to the side, talks to somebody that no one else much noticed or seemed to care for. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He took the time, interrupts his journey, restores Bartimaeus's sight, all for one blind beggar. So what's a leader look like now in the coronavirus era? The first thing we've noticed is that a leader may not look much like a leader to us, may not look like we thought of as a leader. A leader instead will look like Jesus. He's the paradigm. He led the way and he summons us on the road with him. Above all else, a leader is a servant. So think of what's been put before us by this passage. The first part of the vignette raises the question, what matters to me? As we meet James and John with their request, a leader is not. I'm not selfishly ambitious, setting out for my agenda. Jesus' response directs me to think about who am I? that I must be one who understands the personal calling, the lot God has called me to and assigned me to in life, what that involves and what it doesn't. Third, Jesus' response to the 12 altogether, how do I relate to others then? A real leader is a servant who puts others ahead of himself or herself. I put others ahead of myself. Can I do that? And fourth, the climactic revelation. It comes back to the Son of Man who gives his life as a ransom for many to serve us. Whom do I follow? Who is leading me? Like Jesus, I must follow the way of the cross. And that may be very uncomfortable and it will go against every conception of leadership that you'll hear in our culture. So what matters to you? Do you know who you are? Who gets top billing in your life and your decisions? Whom are you following? The way of Jesus, even uncomfortably for us, is the way of the cross. This is a challenge. The church needs leaders like Jesus. The church needs members like Jesus. Have you ever worked with somebody who, when asked to do something that's necessary in the office or the company or the shop, whatever it may be, or the lab, says, that's not in my job description, and walks away? Can't do that. The story is told of the principal who asked the janitor to clean the bathroom in the school because it was a mess for whatever reason. The janitor said that it's disgusting. I'm not going to do it. And the principal 
This is actually a, a real story from a mission setting. The principal went and cleaned it then all by himself. So whether you are serving on the board of the church, working with the youth, fixing your neighbor's broken faucet, whether you think of being a mom on Mother's Day or a parent in general, or a neighbor in the neighborhood or an office mate to your fellow workers, whether you're at work or on Zoom with your fellow workers or whether you're a neighbor in a neighborhood and not going into work, whatever your setting, in this pandemic landscape, service seems all the more important, but it's really always been important and vital because it is the bottom line definition of what it means to lead like Jesus. So it may be picking up that phone call because you know that person really needs to talk or pray with you. Two times this weekend, actually on Friday and on Saturday, I had very sweet friends drop off food on my porch. Totally unexpected, very kind, very moving, uh, from lemon bars to asparagus. Uh, you know who you are. I think you're both here, actually, so thank you. That moved me deeply. Uh, but it was a beautiful example of this is what it means. The coach frustrated with most of the players on his team, pointed to the one guy who'd excelled in the first half during the halftime talk and said, he came to play ball. Why are the rest of you here? Jesus came to earth. Jesus walks with his church to serve. That's why Jesus came. Why are you and I here? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that each person, myself included, would hear your son's clear summons to follow that the Son of Man did not come to be served. May you guard me and each of my brothers and sisters in each context in our lives, from thinking that we're here to enjoy other people serving us and working on our behalf. But the Son of Man came to serve, and even in the most costly of ways, to give his life as a ransom for many. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did that for us and call us to follow you along that way. Holy Spirit, enable us that TCBC individually and as a whole body would be known for being here to serve even at costly sacrifice. Show us this week what that will mean and may we respond under the influence and enabling and strength of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.